It's hard to follow that. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Carrie Jolay. Please stand for today's scripture reading, which is Mark 15, verses 40 through 47. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned that from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. All right. Good morning. Good to see you. Glad you're here with us today um, to celebrate that amazing palm parade. Um, really fun. And uh, let's see. Thank you for being here. Even though, let's see. I think Shuffler's tees off at 1140. Uh, in the masters. Um, but uh, anyway, thanks for recording it. Um, great to have you here. I want to make sure you don't uh, just brush over one of the announcements that we talked about on the loop, and that, and that is Journey to the Cross. And we did this four years ago, and we were about two weeks away from doing it again when the world shut down with COVID. And uh, so it's been a while since we've done it, so you might not know what it is. And that is, where um, you get into a small group, and it's, it's in our lower level this year, and you go down there, and you go through and experience different moments in the life of Jesus, um, the night he was arrested, and then uh, the next day when he was crucified. And so you not only learn about it, but you sit at the table in the upper room. And then you walk into the Garden of Gethsemane and you spend moments reflecting on what happened there. And you touch the cross and you can even feel the weight of the cross. And it is a, an immersive, experiential opportunity for you. And it's designed for small groups to go through. So if you have a community group or your family, um, sign up and take part of this. We're not doing a Good Friday service this year because we're just um, saving that time for a journey to the cross. And so it starts Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And I think about every 15 minutes a group um, goes in. And uh, so you can go online and sign up for it. But it's something that... Uh, you'll really be happy that you uh, took time to do. And uh, man, you have kids in elementary school or, or older, man, this would be a great thing to do as a family as well. So take advantage of Journey to the Cross and then we'll see you 
Sunday for, for Easter. Um, it kicks off a series that we're calling Choosing Hope. And, uh, you know, hope is something that a lot of us have been looking for or have had our hope threatened by changing circumstances and events of our world. And uh, this basically, we're going to spend some time saying how, um, you know, is it possible in uh, this ever-changing world to have a perspective that is real and anchored and it gives you hope. And it doesn't blow away, it doesn't change with what the news says each day, but can it be real and can it be sustained? And so that's what we're gonna be looking at in this new series, and we're gonna be starting with the, the ultimate answer next um, week at Easter. So bring your friends to that. Now today, we just read um, chapter 15. This is our last day in the book of Mark. We started last Easter, and we, we started at the end um, with Mark chapter 16, the resurrection. And so now we're finishing, we're finishing it by going up to Mark 16 and finishing in chapter 15. And um, so there's, there's one thing about chapter 15 and chapter 16 that I wanted to make sure we spent some time talking about because you may see it and have questions about it and going, what's going on? And so um, let's take some time. So chapter 15, verse 27, 28, and 29. All right, so I'm gonna read that to you. It's up on the screen. And I really want you to pay attention to the significance of verse 28. And with him, there were crucified two robbers. One on his right, one on his left. Verse 29. And those who passed by derided him. What happened in 28? It's like in the Greek system, do they not have the number 28? Well, no, it, it was, it's actually a verse, but in some of your translations, it has verse 28, and some of them, it doesn't. So what's going on with, with that? Now, if you turn to chapter 16, and you go to verse nine, the very end of the book, nine through verse 20, you'll see this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 9 through 20. And so your Bible may end at verse 8 um, of Mark chapter 16, and others may have those, those verses. And so what is going on? And it can be confusing. And, and one of the criticisms of the Bible is, is you know, can you re- even trust it? I mean, can you have any confidence at all that the Bible that you hold in your hand today or on your, your phone that you're reading, is that similar at all to what was originally written, you know, 2,000 plus years ago? And so that's a criticism, that's a question, and then you see things like this where it's like, man, that a whole section was left out in some, some translations, and others, evidently, it's there. And so what is going on? Is, is the Bible just kind of like a big game of telephone? Remember that game? You get in a circle and you whisper somebody or something in somebody's ear and they whisper it and whisper it, whisper it. And then the person at the end says, this is what you said. And it was nothing even in the ballpark of what you said because it was lost in translation. And so is that true of the Bible? I mean, what was originally written by the original authors, it was copied over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until today, now where it's printed in mass you know, quantities, and um, do we have any confidence that what we read was actually what originally was written? And so that's the question. 
Chapter 16, verse 9, that's the thing where it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include this. This is the translators telling us that in some manuscripts, those verses are there. And in others, they're not. And what we're telling you is we have a test to check out the reliability, the veracity, the historicity of the text. And these six or nine through 20 don't pass the test. And so we would not recognize them as Holy Scripture and part of what's called the canon of Scripture. All right? So the question is, how do they decide? How do they decide what's in and out? Overall, there's all kinds of rules that the Bible has to meet in order for it to be originally included in the canon. Okay, the books of the Bible have to meet in order to, to uh, do that. Number one is they have to be eyewitnesses or um, people who travel with eyewitnesses in order to have recorded it. They have to have seen um, something that is transformational and, and recorded things that are transformational for people's life. They have to acknowledge that this is inspired of God and part of God's redemptive story. It has to have external historical evidence that it is reliable and that the events were realized outside of the Bible. Um, there's all of these lists of things that have to, have, it has to meet. The early church fathers have to recognize it as, yes, this is the Bible. And so um, there's all of those things. Now, part of it is when there's disagreement between, like in these verses, is 9 to 20 in or is it out? Well, there is a whole science called textual criticism to determine what is actually reliable and what is not. And so I want to talk to you about that just for a little bit. Hang with me. Um, because you will either have the question or somebody will say to you, you know, the Bible is just a bunch of fables. It's not real history. And, and how could you even know what you have is anything related to what was originally recorded? And so this answers some of those questions. And, and it's the science of textual criticism. So what textual criticism does is it takes all of the handwritten ancient documents that we have. All right? So we do not have any original source documents for any ancient writing whether it's Caesar's Gaelic Wars or Homer's Iliad or the Old Testament or the New Testament, those original handwritten um, source documents don't exist. They, they've become dust a long time ago, all right? So what you do is you have, what they did is they copied them. They, they painstakingly went through a process of copying every letter, every word, and, and they were basically human Xerox machines, okay? They just copied them all. They would, had, had this process that was unbelievable. They had to change the pencil, you know, so many times. They couldn't write certain words for God. They, um, they knew in every book, they knew the exact middle letter of that book. And so to check themselves, they would count every letter until they, okay, did I land at the exact middle of this letter? And I mean, it was just all these ways that they, that they checked it. But over the years, you have all these copies. So you gather those copies and you compare them to each other. And you find out, okay, there's some things in here 
that are different. With the Bible, 95, no, 99.5% is the same with all those copies. So that's pretty amazing, 99.5%. Of the 0.5 that differs, like this is a pretty big one, 9 through 20. Those, that's a lot of verses, okay? And so are they in or aren't they? Um, typically, they're more like spelling errors or um, and, and there's all scientific names for these things. Um, they just don't say spelling errors, but they say homophony. That's a, that's a homophony. Well, what's a homophony? Homophony is when um, a word, there, there's two Greek words that sound the same, but are spelt differently and they mean different things. Okay. So in Romans chapter five, verse one, there's a Greek word called ecumen, ecumen. Okay, e, and we would spell it E-C-O-M-E-N, all right? Now, in the Greek language, there are two different letters that give the O sound. So the E-C-O, um, there's one word that is spelt with an omicron. That's an O in Greek, okay? And that means, so ekumen with an omicron means we have. There's another Greek word named ekumen, that's not spelt an omicron, but spelt with an omega, all right? And that's another letter in Greek, that's an O. Now, echomen with an omega means we shall have, all right? And so those are two different meanings. One of them is like we have it, and the other one's no, we're gonna have it, okay? So Romans 5.1 has that word, and in, different, and in different copies, it's spelt different ways, okay? So that is um, called a homophony. There's a uh, dittography, which is our dittography, which is you accidentally copied a letter twice or a word twice. Okay, and so you look at the, these different manuscripts, and oh, this one doesn't have that word twice, this one um, does, what's, what's the deal? So how do you determine which one was the original? Which one was the way it was meant to be? Well, um, what you do is you go back and you say, okay, when was this originally written? So the New Testament was originally written from 50 to 90 AD, all right? So then you say, what's the earliest copy we have? I mean, the closer we can get to 50 to 90 AD with copies of the New Testament, I mean, the reliability probably goes up. And then the more that we have, that would mean we have early ones and more of them to compare. And so if I have one from you know, 250 AD and one from 1500 AD, then, um, and there's a disagreement, I'm probably going with the 250 AD, okay? Because uh, it is closer to the original document. So here's the general rules. When was it written? When's the earliest copy we have? What's the time span then? that we have from the original to the earliest copy, and then how many copies do we have? And so when you look at writings of antiquity, and we'll show you a few of them here. So Caesar's Gaelic Wars, okay? It was written somewhere between 144 BC. Our earliest handwritten copies or partial copies, you know, it could be fragments of that, are dated at 900 AD. That's a thousand years between the original writing and our earliest copies. And how many copies do we have? 10, all right? And so that's not a big sample size, but 
Um, nobody's doubting Gaelic Wars and the, hist the historicity of it. Plato's writings, around 400 BC, they were written around 900 AD um, is our earliest copies. That's a 1,300-year span, and we have seven of those, all right? So the next page here, Aristotle's works, 384 to 322 BC, earliest copy is 1100 AD, that's 1400 years, but we have 193 of them. And so that's really helpful in being able to compare to see, okay, what's the, the compatibility of these copies? And that really helps us grow in confidence that, okay, what was written is actually what we have. And then Homer's Iliad, which is kind of the benchmark of um, you know, ancient writings, as far as the veracity and, and our confidence in them, is 800 BC is when, it, when they were originally written. 400 AD, so that's a pretty good, that's pretty early, is some of our ancient, first ancient manuscripts of Homer. And so that's a 1,200 year span. And we have 643, though, either fragments or whole copies of that to compare and contrast with each other, all right? So that gives us an increasing confidence that what we have is actually what um, Homer wrote. Okay, so now, New Testament, written 50 to 90 AD. Our first handwritten copies, our fragments that we have, are dated 125 AD. That's only 35 years. I mean, we're looking 35 years compared to 1,200 years. And how many copies do we have that are handwritten ancient documents? We have over 24,970 plus because it's growing all the time, all right? And so when you look at ancient documents and say, okay, today do we have confidence in what we have is actually what was written, there is nothing in the ballpark of the Bible. It's really, you can't even compare it because the number of ancient documents and fragments that we have on papyri of the Bible is, I mean, it's just thousands and thousands percent more than the next closest thing. And so that tells us that the Bible you have in your hand is a reliable text to what was written by the original authors. So now what we do, we have 24,900 and some fragments and whole documents, ancient documents. And so when we get to Mark chapter 15, verse 28, and it's like, okay, these documents have it. These manuscripts don't have it. Well, what, what are they dated? Oh, they're dated 1200 AD. This one's dated 300 AD. Okay, well, how about some other ones that were early in the 300s or 400s? Do any of them have those extra verses? No. And so then all of a sudden it's like somewhere down the line, some monk or scribe or what, you know, added those saying, okay, these things are also in the Bible and Mark didn't, you know, Mark didn't include them. So we're just going to wrap this up for Mark. And so they included it, and that got copied a few times, and so that's why they showed up. But it's easy, pretty easy to go back and say, okay, were these in the original documents? Did they exist with the original? And it's like, no, they, they are not reliable. Um, and so that's why those decisions are made. And so the, the translators are just telling you, hey, we did our homework. And those verses, although in some manuscripts, are not in the best and earliest manuscripts. That makes sense? Are you with me? Did I just lose you? I hope not. 
I had a whole section on history um, that I really like, but uh, it just, here, the bottom line is, you can just feel confident that the, the Bible in your hand or the Bible on your, on your tablet or on your phone, um, it is reliable to the source document. And it also is historical, is historically accurate. And um, there's just so much evidence about that that constantly confirms the historicity and the reliability of the historicity of the Bible. That it's, it's overwhelming. And, um, but here's what, what happens today is most of us don't take time to look into that. And then most of us who don't believe in God um, don't take time to look at it. But we heard that the Bible is not historically accurate at all, and it's just a bunch of myths created by his followers hundreds of years later after the fact. And so it's just not reliable. You're just believing in fairy tales. And so that's a convenient thing to say, but it's really foolish if you want to look into the, the facts, because there's just no way you can say it. When within 35 years, we have copies of the text that originally was written, and we have copies and copies and copies of that to compare. And then you can say, okay, yeah, but there's stuff in the Bible that you know, we've never found anywhere else. There's no evidence of it outside of scripture. And that is true today, and it has been true, except most of those things have been checked off thanks to archaeology because things that were not mentioned anywhere in the Bible, cities and different, were, are now found and discovered and identified as real cities, real places that were only talked about in the Bible as far as what, up until that archaeological discovery at least. And so those things are checked off. Um, let me just give you one quote from history that... Uh, I think is cool. It's, it's Sir William Ramsey. He is a British archaeologist. He lived um, and did his, his work in the early 1900s. Uh, he, he was educated in a school that was great on history and science, but they did not believe in the historical, the, the historicity of the Bible. And so he grew up an atheist. He grew up not believing the Bible was history. And he started to rise in prominence and became more and more of a world-renowned archaeologist and historian. And so people were saying, you just need to use your gifts and your abilities and your knowledge to go to Palestine and go to Asia and go to these places that are written in the book of Acts because Acts starts in Jerusalem, goes um, and moves through Asia and then ends up in Europe. And Follow these paths and look for these cities that we don't even know if they exist, but the Bible says they do, and use your archaeological skills to determine, is this history or is this make-believe? And so finally he did it. And so he went out to disprove the book of Acts as a book of history and um, to discredit the entire Bible as a book of history. At the end of his study... The, the, the author of, of Acts is Luke. The end of the study, he says this. He says, Luke is one of the greatest historians who've ever lived on earth. And he actually ended up becoming a follower of Jesus. Um, he, he, it's just like, okay, we're, 
we're finding things that was written nowhere else except in the Bible, and these are real places, and these are real events, and these things happened. And so, um, know this. It's easy to find this stuff, okay? It's easy to find this information. Most people don't give a rip because they're just, this is what I believe, don't confuse me with information. Um, and really, I think it, it comes down to this. It, it's, um, to believe in God means that we need, we need to recognize there's something greater than ourselves. And I should submit my life to God. And I don't want to. Um, I want to do what I want to do. I want to go after what I want to go after. And I want to do what makes me happy and, and, the, and go on that path. And so in the meantime, I'm going to find convenient little pithy statements um, that sound like an intellectual argument, but really aren't. And there are a lot of good intellectual arguments um, to challenge the, uh, the Bible in its historicity that you can go down and actually find information on. But um, most people don't even do it. And so um, we all have doubts. I have doubts. I, I'm, I'm your pastor, and I have doubts. And so when I have doubts, I just go back and say, okay, let me, let me look at the, the, the evidence. Is there, a, is there another explanation for these events? Are there, is there another explanation for the historicity of what's happened in the world and for Jesus, really? Is there another explanation for Jesus? And, and in, I start stacking up evidence, and it's like, no, nah, it's, it's so much more faith I would need to believe that he isn't the person who he said he was. And so I may be sitting down there on Sunday morning getting ready to come up here and all of a sudden have doubts, which isn't a good thing. But I quickly can just shut them down, not because I want, you know, doubts are bad. No, doubts are good. Doubts are good. Just don't stop with your doubts. Find answers. I mean, doubts aren't a threat to God. Okay, if they were, small God. And then uh, they're not. And so, you know, your kids have doubts. I mean, I remember one time I was volunteering at high school camp. One of my daughters was at camp. She comes up to me crying one night. I'm, I'm not, hey, I'm not your counselor. Go to your counselor, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and she goes, Dad, I gotta talk to you. And it's like, okay. And she goes, I don't think I believe in God. And you know, I'm like, I'm a pastor. You have to believe in God. No. Um, <laughs> I was like, it's okay. It's okay, man. You need, to, you need to follow your doubts and think them through. And if God's real, he's not threatened right now. And so you, you think these things through. And that's what I'd say to you is, uh, man, don't fear your doubts. And don't think, I'm not supposed to have doubts. No, man, get, get them into question form and then pursue them. Um, are there answers? And... I really believe there are. And so, um, anyway, the Bible we have is a great historical document and the veracity of it and the reliability of it, you can just have a lot of confidence in. And it just, it just fills my heart to be able to tell you that. I mean, um, it's good stuff. Okay, now we're going back to the verses that we read this morning. Um, and we're just gonna hit a couple things really quick. And, and we're gonna start with verse 40. And uh, in these seven verses, it is, you know, it's a very sad, um, traumatic time. Jesus has been 
crucified on a cross and he's dead. And now the women um, follow when Jesus' body was taken down and placed into a tomb. And a couple of guys get permission to take his body down and go place him in a tomb. And the significant thing I want you guys to catch this morning is who are these people? That they are people that would never spend time together ever outside of being brought together by God into the family of God. So let's, let's start with verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And so you're saying, okay, so tell me more. Who are these people? Well, the significance of these is that there were women. And in that day, in that culture, both the Jewish culture and the Roman culture, women were not seen as first-class citizens. Um, in a court of law, if there was a murder and the only witness to that murder was a woman, the charges would be thrown out because a woman was not allowed to testify in a court of law because their testimony could not be counted upon to be reliable. It was a terrible uh, uh, patriarchal society and culture and values that Jesus blew up because the only people who could say with their own eyes they saw the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection were women. So God, in his eternal wisdom and sovereignty, said, I want women to be the eyewitnesses. Who other people are degrading, I lift up. And it was the women who were the eyewitnesses of the greatest moment in history. Where were the guys? They were hiding. Where were the disciples? They were scared. One of them was hanging. He was dead. The, the other 11 were afraid. They were hiding. They weren't at the cross. They were afraid that they were going to get, they were going to be next in line. But the women were there. Now, in light of what I just told you, now here's a couple of things. In the Jewish culture, Rabbis were some of the most respected, powerful people in that culture. A rabbi prayer that they would pray every morning was, God, thank you for not making me a woman. Yeah, I know. Bad news, huh, Alta? Yeah. I mean, this was considered normal. A, a, a rabbinic teaching was, it is better to burn your holy scriptures than to teach him to a woman. So now, how did Jesus deal with that? Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So he's teaching and he's ministering throughout these villages. And the 12 were with him. Those are the 12 disciples, 12 guys, okay? And also, some women 
who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene. And by the way, they were, we didn't find Magdala. They're going, okay, how come this prominent person in the Bible, Mary Magdalene, which means Mary from Magdala, um, how come we don't have Magdala? Where's Magdala? Uh, 19, no, 2009, it was discovered. Um, Mary called Magdalene from seven demons who seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Okay, um, Herod, one of the wealthiest men in the world at the time. He um, exported all kinds of spices and different things. One of them, I was just told by one of our members, was, was one of his main um, exports was this aphrodisiac. Okay, Chusa was the one who ran his business. Chusa's wife becomes a follower of Jesus. Now listen to this. Um, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them their means. So who paid for Jesus' traveling ministry? The women. Probably Chusa's wife, who's handling the finances of Herod. So I think God's using Herod's money to finance the ministry. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? But there's these women who are traveling with Jesus. Could you imagine? I mean, you know, at all the checkout stands, the grocery store, it would have been everywhere. You know, controversy. What are these women doing with Jesus? What's going on here? Why would Jesus have these, you know, people that he shouldn't, if he was a good rabbi, he shouldn't be near these people, and he's with them. There was a group of rabbis called the, the bruised and bleeding rabbis. I'm not making this up. This is true. And they believed that women were so below them that they didn't even ever want to look at a woman. And so when a woman came into their presence or walking down the street and they see a woman coming their way, they would close their eyes. And then they would run into things. And they would trip and fall down. And that's why they're called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. The bruised and bleeding Pharisees. I mean, this was, this was the culture. And in that culture, Jesus was called a rabbi and he's teaching his followers and a good number of them are women. He's going into different towns and he's ministering to people and women, women are ministering to people. I mean, Jesus is looking at everybody and saying, you were created in my image, in the image of God and you have great value and worth. And I don't care what society says about you. You're important to me. And I came for you. And I'll receive you into my family. That's the love I have for you. They were powerless in society, and yet Jesus lifted them up with great value and dignity. And said, no, you're, you're all loved by me. And you're made to be in relationship with me. And so I love you and I pursue you. So how about you? I mean, do we have our pecking order of people who are important to us and people who aren't? And people, we, we, we go beyond, even beyond that and say, okay, those people are valuable and these other people aren't as? That, that's, a human, that's a human system that you're creating there that's not of God. And God blew up that system. 
and says, my family's going to be different. And the least of these, the disenfranchised, those who feel like they don't have a place, those who feel powerless in society, you are fully loved by God, perfectly loved by God, and you're invited in. But not just the disenfranchised. Then there's the guys. Uh, Mark, um, well, first of all, Paul said it this way in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ. I mean, we are all loved and pursued by God and valued, valued by God. Okay, so now we jump down. We, now we contrast women with no power in that culture to a couple guys that had great power in that culture. Je- Joseph of Arimathea, verse 43, a respected member of the council. What's the council? Council is a group of, of, uh, of Pharisees who are um, called the Sanhedrin. They are literally the Supreme Court for the Jewish people. All right? So they are the most respected of the respected in, in their community. So Joseph a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. So he was on a spiritual journey. He, he, was, he had listened to Jesus and he's had this wrestling inside him. I think he might be the Messiah. I think he, what, what he's saying actually lines up to what's been prophesied. And he's had that in him. And now, hey, where, where did Jesus be tried? Where was he tried the night before he was killed? At the house of Caiaphas, who was the chief priest in the Sanhedrin. And so the Sanhedrin had convened. So Joseph of Arimathea was there as they accused Jesus of blasphemy and said he needs to be crucified. And Joseph sat there torn but silent. And so Joseph all of a sudden took courage, it says, and he went to Pilate. Who's Pilate? The Roman governor, he, he, he's the power of Rome in Palestine at this time. And he says Jesus should be crucified. It's, it's his authority in which Jesus was crucified on. And so here now is Joseph of Arimathea going to Pilate and saying, hey, I'm a sympathizer of Jesus. Can I have permission to take down his body and give it a proper burial? He's exposing himself. In um, John chapter 19, verse 38 to 40, it says Joseph was not alone. But you know who else was with him? A man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was also a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, another member of the Supreme Court, who was being influenced by Jesus. And he was wrestling with, with the thought. And so he would go to Jesus when? At night, it said. At night. He, he was being drawn to Jesus, and he was starting to buy in, but not willing to risk his power and influence. These two had power and influence. They were rich. They had the respect of, of their country. And now they gain courage. Why? Why did they gain courage? Because they were risking that power. They used their power to have access to Pilate, and they risked that power by exposing themselves as followers of Jesus. Following Jesus takes risk. What was happening in them? 
their identity was changing. Their identity had been, I'm wealthy, I'm powerful, I'm respected. I will do lots of different things, but I'm not risking that. And now all of a sudden, something in them is building a new identity that's stronger than their old identity. And so now they're using their influence and their affluence in a way that is risking their influence and affluence. And they're saying, I'm willing to lose that because my new identity is greater and that Jesus is the Messiah. And as great as I've always thought I am, my sin is the reason why Jesus had to die. It's an amazing thing that Jesus' pursuit of us reaches those who feel lonely and says, no, you're valuable. And reaches those who are arrogant and said, your sin is the reason I had to die. Two things happen at once. We're incredibly humbled and my sin is worse than I ever imagined. And yet, I'm incredibly lifted up and that the God of the universe loves me so much that he would sacrifice for me. Knocks down the human barriers. And now there are these women who are looked down upon by Jewish and Roman society who Jesus says, come on in, let me teach you. I got good news. And then there is these wealthy elite who Jesus says, you can't save yourself. You need a savior. You need me. Come on in. And in his family are these two groups of people who would never spend time with each other outside of the act of God. And now they're family forever. So in your journey, is your identity and who you are in Christ growing to the extent that you're willing to risk things that you want to place your identity in? I mean, following Jesus means we risk. And it's worth it. I mean, we just think of next week's Easter, one of the two times of the year where people will most likely go to church if they're asked. Yeah, but I'm risking my reputation. Maybe they'll misunderstand me. I really love this person to go. They've been on my heart, but I don't know. I just feel like I'm going to stumble over words and they're going to misunderstand my, my motive. And, and uh, I mean, do you love them like God does? And are you willing to take risks and things that you hold on tight in order to do the right thing? And God loves you. And maybe you're on your journey. And uh, in your journey, you're realizing that God's been pursuing you. And you're coming to the point that says, no, my answers are being, or my questions are being answered. And uh, I'm to the point where I am willing to recognize that God's pursued me and has made a way for me to be made right with him through what Jesus did for me. That's where you're at. I just invite you to talk to God about that. And so we're all going to close our eyes and bow our heads. 
And if that's where you're at, um, you, you can just talk to God right now and just express the desire of your heart. He said, um, whoever believes in me will be, be with me for all eternity. And what he's saying is, are you willing to trust me alone to be made right with God? And if that's where you're at, you can just say, uh, God, I thank you because I know you have been pursuing me. And I recognize that you love me. And you made me to be in a relationship with you. And that can be had through what Jesus did for me. And so because of the death of Jesus for our, my sins, I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you to begin making me in the person, into the person you created me to be. I thank you for making me part of your family. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. If this morning um, you just prayed along with me and prayed that prayer, then uh, I have a favor to ask of you, and it's not a painful favor, it's not an embarrassing favor, um, but it's just a simple um, thing to do. And that is, as soon as we're done, um, go out through those doors, and in the, the middle of that atrium area out there are some desks, and there's some people behind those desks, and just go tell them, hey, um, I, I prayed along with Bill today, and you're supposed to have something for me. And what they have is just a little, um, I think it's just an eight and a half by 11, folded in half, and it goes over um, verses that says, uh, that just reinforces what God has done for you. And so it reinforces what you just did so that you, um, you know, when doubts come, you can go, okay, what, is this what God said I was supposed to do? And yep. And then the question is, how, how did, in this new journey, how do you begin growing? I mean, how do you start knowing him more, who he really is, and who he says you really are? And so we have some just some practical information there about how you can start that journey. And, um, you know, some things may resonate, some things don't. Do what resonates. And I think you're going to find it helpful. So that's available to you right out at the center um, station. And if you're online and you prayed today, uh, go to rollinghills.org slash next steps and uh, then a uh, little dialogue box will come up and you just say i i'm um, asked for forgiveness today of jesus and i want that information and they'll they'll get your information so they can send that to you man thanks you so much for being here if you're a guest here with us man so glad that you're here. I mean, in this room, there are people all over the place in their spiritual journey. And so you don't have to be someplace that you're not. We just wanna say, hey, wherever we're at, let's just start growing together. And so, I mean, I hope this is a safe place for you to uh, continue that journey um, in your life with God. And uh, we're gonna have the offering here in a second. And I want you to know as a guest, we, there's zero expectation that you should participate in this, in this offering. The family of Rolling Hills uh, supports all the ministries of Rolling Hills and the ministries that not only happen in our local community, but also really all throughout the world. And uh, so thank you for your generosity. And if you're a guest and man, you're not feeling really motivated, uh, then don't do it. And because uh, we have no expectation, we're just glad you're here. And so thanks for that. And we're gonna continue to sing songs 
about uh, the significance of Jesus in our lives.